0: He's right there by Miss Nell. We could just say amen, have the benediction, and go home. Boy, have glorious. Thank you, precious lady. Wow. Well, the, our ministers of handouts are coming around and uh, providing you with a handout. Keep in mind that the handouts that I've passed out from time to night time are not inerrant, except they have the scripture printed on them, okay? <laughs> These are things that I prayerfully, carefully prepare, uh, hopefully useful, uh, but unless it's just the printed word on that sheet, uh, you, you prayerfully, carefully use it. And I would say that about anything. Always be a Berean Christian, that's what the scripture says. They listened, and they went home and searched the scriptures to see if those things be so. And this is our only safeguard right here, the living word of God. Our text is the gift that keeps on giving. And we'll read here in a moment, 1st James chapter 1, 13 through 17. I'm going to focus on the last verse, but I started the week with this whole section here, 13 through 17, and I was purposing to go a little bit of a different direction because there, there's this gift that keeps on giving of which will be our focus, but there are other things that keep on giving, and that's what I was <laughs> going to start with in verse 17 because it warns us there about lust and what lust gets and uh, what it causes, and Paul addressed some of those things that we... we Purchased, so to speak, with our lust. He said, this of those, what fruit had you then, and those things of which you are now ashamed. So those gifts are still giving too, because we look back on them with shame. And as one brother in a Bible conference I was listening to one time, he said, I'm going to share something with you that I had to place in my hall of shame. He said, I have a hall of shame rather than a hall of fame. And he said, this is one of those things there that I am ashamed of still today. Very humble guy, very effective teacher. Well, of course, the central focus today, listen to the news much, which I try not to, so I don't stay mad all the time. Uh, The central focus is the broadcast seems to be the dismal state of our economy and our country the dismal state of our country. This once great United States of America is in a mess, obviously, we understand that. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to discern that. But the focus is there and political uh, contenders on both the left and the right uh, make that one of their major talking points. And it's interesting because those on the left talk about what they've done good for the economy and in my opinion, which is sometimes humble, I think that is a, that the greatest stretch of uh, and realignments of reality that you can come up with to say, this is good. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you may disagree. You, it's all right. You can disagree with me. You have the right to be wrong. But <laughs> I'm playing with you, of course. But you know, it's a difficult time. Votes have consequences. But those on the right... Well, they're now busy continuing to uh, continue to get back in office and back in control, pointing out what the left has done and then what the right will do if they get in. And we should never put a whole lot of trust in that either because sometimes it seems like things just don't ever happen that way once the person gets into office. One of the key strategies, of course, both sides contending for any political office, always down through the years, to play on the emotions of their constituency. And so there are those things, well, if the, this group gets in, they're going to cut Social Security and so forth. And then they, during this time of the season, or another thing, in this time of the season, of course, this particular season, they tell these emotional you know, things about people having to cope with having a smaller Christmas this year because of the way the economy is. And I find that's interesting because it's almost like they talk about that, a smaller Christmas, when a large Christmas is a constitutional right. It's amazing how materialistic our culture is. and We get caught up in that. Isn't it interesting that we're going to celebrate the birth of one who was born in a barn, never owned a piece of property, never owned a place to lay his head, and came and bled and died for us, and we're gonna celebrate his birth by spending millions of dollars and having all the retailers retailers get into the black? It's a strange thing we do, and it goes on all over the world. But (laughs) if crowded parking lots and South Broadway is indicative of anything going on since Black Friday, it seems like the concern about the economy is not having that much of an impact on the shopping enthusiasm out there. Everybody's looking for that perfect gift, as if there was one that could be purchased. They may be a little bit more cautious in how much they spend for that perfect gift, but all the while they're going after it in a mass, the Amazon delivery guys are working overtime. But it's not over, it started on Black Friday. Then there's that mad rush post-Christmas to exchange those things we didn't like and get what we want, because lust must be satisfied with things. But the truth is, the perfect gift is not to be found not in the malls, here in Tyler, in the big malls, in the major cities, or anywhere, the perfect gift is not to be found because there was only one perfect gift and it's already been given. And that perfect gift keeps on giving. That's the glory of it. Given once and forever. And that perfect gift keeps on giving. Our text is John James chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. Let us... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> All I want for Christmas is a good quantity of throat lozenges. <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man with evil. That's not there, but I added that. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, it bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no wearableness nor shadow of turning. Father, we love you and love your word. And as we do each time we gather here in this place of your provision, we come to hear from thee. And so, Lord, to that end, it's got to be all you, none of me, because you're the one master. They want to hear all of us. In the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen and amen. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, in whom there's no variableness or shadow of turning. Father of lights, lights is false, This means anything, it's a light source. Father, in the Scripture, is used several different ways. Of course, it's God the Father, the Eternal Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also the term Father is used as the Creator, God the Father, the Creator, or the source of all things. And in this particular verse, in James chapter 1, this is the only verse in Scripture that Uses that title or that name for God the Father, the Father of lights. And it's interesting what John is doing here, but obviously he had a purpose under the direction of the Holy Spirit of saying, Every good gift comes down from the Father of lights, in whom there's no change, no shadow, no variableness of turning. Most certainly, when the title is speaks, he uses that Father of Lights title of the Lord, he's referring to the heavenly lights, the sun, moon, and stars. And obviously, God is the source of those. He is the creator of those lights. But he's also the source of all spiritual light. And you'll remember for our study of first John, where John reminded us that God is light. And God is love. First John 1, 5, for example, this then is the message we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So obviously there's no shadow of turning. There's no darkness in God at all. God is light. And this light in the stars, this light in the sun, this light in the moon and all those things are created lights. But the light that is in God the Father is not created in a predated creation that we saw in our study because Love and light are two aspects of the essence of our God and our Father. So the general meaning here that I believe that John is conveying to us is this. While there's variation naturally existing in the heavenly luminaries, it's naturally there because it was created to be there, that variation, and we see that in the coming and going of seasons and whatever. It has variation like everything else God created. Everything in creation God made has variation by design. And John points to that but says, the one in essence who made all things, he has no change whatever. Seized in and seasoned out, he never changes. Philo, who was a Hellenistic philosopher, Jewish philosopher, in the first century, (laughs) He used the allegorical method of Scripture interpretation and application, which really is a no-no, so to speak. But he did to align the Greek philosophy with primarily the Septuagint, not the Septuagint, but the Torah, the first five books of the Scriptures. But he said this, and I think he had this nailed. Every created thing must necessarily undergo change For this is their property, even as unchangeableness is the property of God. Unchangeableness is the property of God. He never changes the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3, 6, he said, I'm the Lord. I don't change. I am the Lord. I change not. And in this theology, theological terms, we call that the immutability of God the unchangingness of God the Father. He's unchanging in his nature, his character, his power, his essence, his purposes, and praise God, unchanging in his promises as well. So the context is teaching us this, that the source of every good and perfect gift is this unchanging God. This unchanging God is the source. And there's no variableness or shadow turning in him. And there's nothing to be feared as children of God because of that which he does in the giving of gifts. Because they're good gifts and they're perfect gifts based on his holy, gracious nature. Does that mean all his gifts might feel good? Must feel good all the time, no. (laughs) No, because one of the things God gives his children is correction. Correction does not necessarily feel good. But it is worthwhile. Because God knows when we need correction. Another thing we could think about, too, in this regard... Is this unchangeable nature of God, his purposes, his degrees, his promises, his character, everything? He is omnipotently in charge. That means completely in charge. And nothing can come to you and I as the children of God except what he allows. Now, I'm sure you have. Well, I think you probably have. I know I have, have said, Lord, I can't understand for the life of me why you're allowing this. And you know what he said to me? Nothing. (laughs) He doesn't have to give me a reason or you either. But nothing can come to you or I except what God allows. And what God allows is he uses. There's uh, uh, There's one particular political party. I don't want us to be arrested because I'm not a politically correct preacher, okay? So I'm trying to protect y'all by keeping my mouth in check. One particular political party says, though, there's never a crisis we can't use to further our agenda. But God says, what I allow, I will further my agenda in you, and my agenda in you... Is the sanctification of your soul to develop in you the character, the likeness of my son, whom I send to buy you from the slave market of sin. God is in control of what he allows to come our way. And even though we don't like it, it doesn't feel good and it hurts at times. My God is working for me and in me for his glory and in you for his glory and your good as well. What a savior. What a father, what a God. Scripture speaks of God's gifts to us. There are numerous things. I've selected a few. John four ten. Jesus speaks of himself as a gift. He's speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus didn't speak to Samaritans. Here he's speaking to a Samaritan. Watch with Jesus anyway. And she's wondering that herself. Jesus said in answer to her, if you knew us the gift of God... And who it is that saith to thee, give me a drink, thou would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus referred to himself as the gift of God. Most indeed he is a gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 speaks of the gift of faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. We have to understand. People say, oh, well, I had the faith to believe. You didn't have nothing. No one has anything except what God gives them. Okay? We need to keep our, our flesh in check before this holy God who is sovereign over all things. He gave us the faith to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we wouldn't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, you know what that means, ladies and gentlemen? That means if he walked, the Lord Jesus walked in here today and you were all lost in sin and I was lost in sin, we wouldn't believe upon him as the Savior and be saved because of our belief in Him unless God gave us the gift of faith to believe upon Him. Amen. Spiritually dead people don't do spiritually right things. We were dead in sin. And He gave us the gift of faith to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Acts 2.38 speaks of the Holy Spirit as ago gift. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, everyone in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Wow, what a gift the Holy Spirit is. Jesus said when he was leaving to go back to glory, he said I'll not leave you alone. Tarry in Jerusalem. Got something coming for you guys. <laughs> Holy Spirit of God. What a gift from the Father. Obviously the greatest gift has already been given. It's already been given. You know something, if you and I never had anything else in life, nothing. If we lived out our lives as paupers living in caves, but we had this gift, we'd be rich. And eternally so. And a lot of the money spent at Christmas is trying to make this place heaven. (laughs) It's not going to happen. But heaven will be something for sure. This Zig Ziglar said one time, goodness, I think it's going to be some kind of a nice place up there. Heaven, a gift of God to those who believe. Romans 623, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So we've got the Lord Jesus Christ as a gift. We've got the faith to believe upon him as a gift. We have the Holy Spirit of God working in us day in and day out as we are his children to serve him in our lives and to guide us along his path for us. And then we have this eternal life gift in front of us. It began, but it's already, of course, existing. But there it is out there in glory for all of us. And this perfect gift, the word perfect is teleos. It means complete. It is complete. When the Lord Jesus Christ was given to us by God the Father as our Savior, when he gave Christ to come to die for us, it was a perfect, complete gift, and nothing else is needed beyond that. And that gift keeps on giving. We'll spend a few moments. That's where your handout comes in. Because I'm just going to go down through this outline. Pretty close, anyway. (laughs) And uh, think about this perfect gift, what he's given, is giving, and continues to give. God's perfect gift has provided believers with four kinds of forgiveness. Four kinds of forgiveness. There's the initial judicial forgiveness, initial fellowship forgiveness, and then there's continuing judicial forgiveness, and continuing fellowship forgiveness, four different kinds. Of course, the blanket is forgiveness, right? But it's, here's four aspects of it. Maybe I should say it better that way. Let's examine each one of them. Initial judicial forgiveness. What? And here's the time frame: when immediately at the moment of saving belief. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Immediately, right then, we have judicial forgiveness before God the Father. And it's available to us because of Jesus' death on the cross. He offered himself as a sacrifice for sin once forever. One sacrifice set down at the right hand of God. For by one offering he has perfected forever. Perfected forever them that are sanctified. Again, perfected is teleos. Completed forever. Them that are sanctified. That means we are completely saved through that sacrifice. It doesn't mean that we are perfectly in sanctification from that moment. That's a process. Positionally, though, we are sanctified, complete in Him for all eternity. And the nature is, it's conditioned on faith alone and Christ alone. Nothing else. Nothing else we bring. We come to Christ by faith alone. In him alone. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him, what? Would not perish, but have eternal life, everlasting life. In Acts 16, 31, that Philippian jailer, what a divine appointment he had. <laughs> he brought the Paul Silas out, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. This judicial forgiveness is instantaneous right then at the precise time that a person savingly believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. The sins involved include every sin that that person, you and I or anyone else, has ever committed in all their life. Right then, those sins are covered. And the result is that the eternal life begins right then. If you were born again 40 years ago... 40 years ago, your eternal life began. If it's the day before yesterday, your eternal life began before then. But the day before that, 40 years ago, or the day before before yesterday, you were under the damnation of eternal death. But instantly, upon believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ with the gift of faith that he has given us, we are acquitted, judicially, positionally cleared of all sin at that particular moment in time. We have initial fellowship forgiveness. I've run across people through the year. I'm not saying this to condemn anyone or criticize them, but they struggle with stuff, and you know, and particularly in some of the uh, charismatic arenas that I've got involved in—not pastoring any of them, just fellowshipping or whatever. But they say, "Well, you know, I was." I was saved when I was a child, but then I was lost for several years, and then I came back to God, and back and forth, back and forth. That's not doctrinally sound. It's not. Because if we're saved, we're saved. If you've been born of God... Remember, born again. The word "again" can be. There's one place. It's the word Greek word "anothen," a n o t h e n. Anothen. It means to be born from above. And if you are dead in sin and born from above, not based on your good behavior, but based on the choice of God the Father, what on earth are you going to do to lose that new birth in the first place? How do you become unborn? And the answer is you cannot. So, you might have been saved then wandered off in sin and because being miserable you came back in repentance but you were saved whenever you were saved and you're not lost since you've been born of God not one moment not one second forever and you know that has torment that doctrine has torment for people they don't understand that because they are walking along and then they just fall flat on their face because they've succumbed to the lust of the flesh and they're under conviction and they think, i lost my salvation and what I'm going to do, they're are, are trying to walk so straight all the time, not that we shouldn't, for fear of losing their salvation. That has torment to it. John, will, you will see it in a verse when we go back to John. That has torment to it as the King James says, that has tormented it. Perfect love cast out fear, fear has torment. And that certainly brings that into. So we have initial fellowship forgiveness at the moment of conversion. And how does that come about? Well, it's a removal of estrangement. We are estranged from God, we're separate from God, but in, immediately upon belief, saving belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have fellowship with God from that point on. The carnal mind is enmity, Romans eight seven, enmity against God, for he is not subject to the law of God, neither and can be. There was that estrangement there between us and God, ever lost person in God, and there's nothing that any mortal can do to remove that estrangement. It has to be a work of God. The sins involved. another way people say well you know I'm not a bad person this has nothing to do with that that is strange but naturally existed you might be the best person on the planet really morally the best person on the planet but if you've not been born of god you're naturally estranged from god That's why this very religious person named Nicodemus came to see Jesus in the night because his peers were bombarding him about it. That I know you're from God. You couldn't do what you're doing if you weren't from God. That's typical of the Lord. He didn't even respond to that. He just said, Nick, you've got to be born again or you're never going to see or enter the kingdom of God. You've got to be born from above or you'll never enter And to receive the kingdom of God. So all this this fellowship begins right then at the moment of conversion. All our previous sins are covered under the blood of Jesus. And fellowship begins right then, 1 John 1, 3, and 7. That which we've seen and heard, handle with our hands, he spoke of. The apostolic uh, confession of faith in Christ that he mentions two or three times that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. If we walk in the light, is He in the light? We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's it. That's the genesis of it. Our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ began when we believed upon Him as our Savior. And then we have continuing judicial forgiveness, So, We have initial, but we have continuing When does this take place? Continuing judicial forgiveness at the moment of Christian sins. So this could be just one step past conversion. (laughs) You know, because we all have sin in our lives. We're converted now. But we have continuing fellowship continuing judicial forgiveness, rather, excuse me, with Christ and with the Father, and it continues though even when we commit sin. Now think about this: it continues even when we commit sin. It's provided for through the Lord Jesus Christ as our advocate before the Father. First John two one tells us. These little, my little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ the righteous. He's also, by the way, the propitiation for our sins, which means he paid for that sin you committed post your conversion experience. Those sins that you committed yesterday, and those sins you're going to commit next week, were paid for, and so we have that aspect of continuing judicial forgiveness before God. Remember now that this continual judicial work as our advocate occurs before a believer confesses his or her sin. Okay? This work... It's going on before you confess your sin. You have continuing judicial forgiveness before you, can, you confess your sins. Well, if you didn't have, what would it mean? It may be lost for a moment. When you lose your judicial, judicial forgiveness, you're lost. But we can't lose that. We have continuing judicial forgiveness. Forgiveness before the Father. I'm going to read a statement that a fellow named Wendell Miller wrote, and I haven't a clue, you know, what he was all about in all of his stuff. But he he wrote this down, and it's thought-provoking to me. And I want to be very careful here, and you should be too. Anytime we try to put words in the Father's mouth or words in the Lord Jesus Christ's mouth, okay? Okay. But he takes us through his imagination. Phil and I have talked about we have great imaginations. And it's helpful at times. and it can be dangerous at other times. But he takes us in his imagination into the courtroom, to the bar of God and our advocate before the Lord's court. He said, in God's courtroom, where all statements made by our advocate are absolutely righteous, he does not deny our sins make excuses for us, plea bargain in our behalf, or try to have the case dismissed on the basis of technicalities. Instead of attempting to attain a believer's release from the penalty of his sin by denying his guilt or presenting supposedly mitigating circumstances, every time a believer sins, Jesus identifies that believer as his own and says, I paid for that sin on the cross. The Father answers, that's right. We'll mark that paid in full. Now, I don't know what goes on up there in those discussions, and maybe nothing has to be said. But theologically, from the scriptures, That's what's happened. That's it. Our sins have been paid for. Now, one of the things that really gripped me about what he wrote there, when Jesus hears this child of his that he died for their sin, me or whoever, and I commit a sin, and here's Jesus saying, yes, bractures of mine, and I paid for that. That's sobering. That makes me not want to sin as if I wanted to sin anyway. But I got this sin nature and so do you. But think about it. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father. He bled and died for our sin. And here we are still fiddling around with sin. And we're looking forward to his coming back. And that's why John says every man that has this hope in him is what? Purify himself as he is pure. I don't want to have to be identified as, yes, he's one of mine, Father. And that's, I paid for that mess he's doing. I don't want that. It's like a father or a mother getting a phone call in the middle of the night. Mrs. Jones, Mr. Jones... This is the police department. We've got your kid down here, drunk or drugged up or committed some kind of crime. Can you, do you know the the grief that mother and father feels immediately? Mm. Been there. Been there. that helps me understand and I'm thankful for it in only one respect it helps me understand what grieving the Holy Spirit is what quenching the Holy Spirit is I grieve the Holy Spirit of God Christ in me when I sin against Him and God help me to not do that and it's just not it's not just the fact that I'm going to see him when he comes. I have this, it's not that I have this hope in me purifying myself because I want to be as pure as I can be when he gets here. I just love him. <laughs> and I don't want to grieve him. I don't want to grieve him. I want pleasing to the Father. Note carefully, though, what all this means. It means that the Lord's continuing advocacy, His continuing advocacy for us is not contingent upon your behavior and mine. It's not. And if you can charge that up to anything other than sovereign grace, marvelous grace, amazing grace, would you let me know what it is? Amazing grace. Jesus' work as a believer's advocate, Hebrews 735, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost. <laughs> Glory to God. I love that word uttermost. That come unto God by Him, seeing that He ever liveth to make intercession for Him, for them. The nature of this is immediate and unconditional all our sins and all of our lives before conversion, after conversion. Mm -hmm. Thus we continue to walk to stand judicially, positionally, perfect before God the Father because we stand there judicially, positionally, perfect before God the Father because we have the imputed righteousness of the perfect gift imputed to us, you and I, As we stand before God. the imputed righteousness. And for any believer to lose his or her salvation, it would mean that the Lord had to lose his case before the Father. And that's just not going to happen, is it? We have continuing fellowship forgiveness. The time when we confess our sins. Notice these other things. We're contingent about believing, whatever. This is when we confess our sins, we have continuing fellowship. The means is Jesus' ministry as high priest, our high priest standing there before the Father. And it's con- the nature of it is conditioned on our confession, conditioned on our confession. That's one thing that comes into play with us and our responsibility is confession of sin. Because we can hinder our fellowship. We've talked about it in our Sunday, 1 John. We can hinder our fellowship with God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the absence of confession of our sin. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember the back end of that verse? Cleanse us from all. We confess our sins. But when we confess our sins, naming everything that we've done, that was sin against God, confessing his sin... He accepts that, but also he cleans up the swath behind us, all of our unrighteousness. So we continue to stand then in fellowship, unhindered fellowship with the Father. So, the perfect gift from the Father was a person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us the gift of faith to believe upon Jesus. We are born again through that faith that was a gift of faith that He gave us. Then we were given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Along with that, spiritual gifts that we could serve Him with our lives. Every single one that's born of God has spiritual gifts. I wonder what a chart would look like if we had up here everyone born of God and then everyone's spiritual gifts that have been given by the, distributed by the will of God. And then over here, how much of those spiritual gifts were used? I wonder. God gave us this stuff. I don't mean that irreverently. God gave us these gifts to serve him in this life. How much are we using of that? And, you know, I have opinions. I guess you've decided that you understood that by now. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of freedom in being an interim pastor, you know, because you pretty much say what you want and they can't fire you. And all they do is say, don't come back next week. But I, I, I've been in this church a long time. I've been out here and sat around the different places. I hear these people, these voices. I hear voices that are incredibly good. And I'm wondering, why aren't you singing all the time? Solos and, and, and what do you call those groups? And quartets and ensembles or whatever. Using those gifts. and They have musical talents and play things and, and whatever. Preach, teach, something. But whatever God gives us, we ought to use it for the glory of it, his glory, and our joy. I'm going to tell you, I know God called me to preach and gifted me to do it. And sometimes I look in the mirror and say, Lord, i tell you one thing I got an opinion about. You gifted a lot of guys a lot better, but I'm grateful for what you gave me because I'm going to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I have no greater joy. I have no greater joy. Than this, preaching and teaching His Word. You talk about an addiction, (laughs) boy! I've got an addiction. Forgive me for running around chasing rabbits. Not only do we receive the perfect gift of the Holy Spirit, but in Second Peter one three. According as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that called us to glory and virtue. Everything that pertains to life on the planet and godliness well on the planet, he's given us in Christ the Lord. So what is our excuse anyway? If we're not living right, walking right, serving the Lord as we should. I was in an evangelism conference with the Southern Baptist Convention in Dallas, Texas, one time, in Union Arena, it was a packed house, and they had glorious vocalists singing, boy, and the congregation was singing fabulously, and the music was off the charts, the instruments and all this stuff, and how these eloquent preachers and whatever got up and did these great messages, and then a gentleman got up, with the name of David Ring. I don't know if you ever heard of David Ring, if you're not, he has cerebral palsy. And David, (laughs) he'll talk a little bit. He he speaks with an accent, right? (laughs) Cerebral palsy. You have to get used to listening to him. But he nailed it. And he said, you know, people say this and that and the other, but God called me to preach, and I'm preaching. What's your excuse? It was humbling, because this guy, He doesn't move right, and he doesn't talk right by our standards. But God called him a priest, and he's preached all over the place, all over the nation. He said, what's your excuse? All my life I've been told I'm not normal. I'm normal. This is the way God made me. What's your excuse? You know what? I don't think you could find a dry eye in that packed auditorium when he was through. Because that's the truth. God made us and He gifted us because of His holy purpose, again, before the foundation of the earth, that we would serve Him in this life. Jesus gave all He had, right, on the cross. I somehow believe we ought to give all we've got in service to Him, complete in Him. Colossians 2.10, we are complete in Him. Think about that. That's according to the measure of the Father. We are complete in Him. And so the Lord Jesus is that perfect gift of God. And He perfectly fits every elect heart. Perfectly fits. He's given us everything that pleases to life and godliness. And we're complete in him. Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, wrote to Timothy, wise counsel for all of us. He said, wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting over my hands. That word stir up is a long Greek word, but it means kindle afresh. It means to stir up the fire. Keep the fire going. Continue to stir it up. Making sure that nothing in this life, the highs and lows of economic success, the highs and lows of physical health or not, the highs and lows in marital difficulties or whatever, the highs and lows for their children or whatever, the aggravation of trying to drive down South Broadway when you remember why it used to be or what, don't let anything can reduce the fervor of your fire. Keep the fire hot. This season, we're celebrating his birth. Make sure the fire's hot and nothing detracts from it. For his glory, for his glory and our joy. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen and amen.